Good evening. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. This is episode 75. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, filling in for Troy Goodfellow, who would apparently rather spend time with his wife than with you or me. To keep the streak alive tonight is freelance writer Julian Murdoch. It is something of a streak. It's like 10 shows in a row or something, isn't it? I think it's much longer than that, actually. I think it's pretty much been continuous since uh, episode two. Oh, well, for the show, I'm talking about you. <laughs> oh, God, no. If this were just my streak, I just I, I wouldn't even be here tonight. But we, we have to think of the, the larger issue here. The larger the issue, yeah. No, well, I mean, the option was we could let the show go dark, or the two of us could make something up. <laughs> yep. And so we decided to make something up. Um, tonight we're working on, I guess you'd call it, um, the ideal syllabi of an introductory and intermediate class in strategy gaming. Uh, what are the best games to help people learn to play and love strategy and wargaming? How do we how do we bring new people into the hobby? And why would these games work? Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, what games are the most instructive? Um, which What are the games that can do the most to deepen our understanding and appreciation of the genres? Um, so I guess we'll start with that, bringing that was, in new blood. That, that was a way more articulate way of defining this than I could probably have ever come up with. I've uh, about this all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so bringing in new blood. So there's two things that I was thinking about on this topic, right? One is, you know, as a guy that's got kids, obviously I want them to grow up to be nerdy little grognards so that I have somebody to play against when I'm 65. Uh, so so I'm, I'm constantly on the lookout for games that I think – teach them about strategy, teach them about gaming, but also really engender some love for it. Because like I could strap them to a chair and say, you must play Advanced Squad Leader. But, you know, my six-year-old isn't going to really get a lot out of that. Right. He'd be obedient, but that would be about it. So so there's this trade-off between games that have deep strategic content, but that are actually really approachable and fun. And I think that was actually the thing I struggled with most in sort of coming up with the list. But I want to hear, like, what would your introductory what would the first thing like you know non-gamer intelligent adult you know says i really want to get into the strategy thing where should i start what would you say um you know i mean this is going to sound horribly cliche um but i guess for me one of the absolute best places to start really is chess and chess accompanied by um you know, chess master. Um, you know, that's, you know, I, I love you so much. I should just become gay right now because every time I say that somebody always tells me like, Oh, old man, old man. I agree completely. Well, it's, it's our podcast nights, our damn rules. (laughs) Um, Tonight it truly is three moves ahead. Um, the, the thing, the reason I think it's important to start with, um, a game like Chess Master, because uh, most people, I think, do know you, you pick up at some point how to play chess. The question yeah, is just like what the pieces do. Play. Really, right. what the pieces figure do. that out. But the great thing about something like Chess Master is, I mean, I've been playing chess for years before I got into taking the, um, like, the Chess Master tutorials, right? right? And the chess lessons. And just doing those changed my appreciation of the game so much. It taught me so much. It, like, it changed how I thought about the pieces. It changed how I saw the board. And I think that's something that isn't easy to replicate in other games. Most other games can't do that. Uh, but Chess Master's there to get you to like look at chess problems and find new creative approaches 
in how you maneuver these pieces. I, I think the, you know, Chess Master was, I mean, you know, since the dawn of video games, Chess Master's been around. I mean, it's got to be one of the longest running, continuously developed franchises in video game history. I'm not sure I could come up with one that's longer. And, and the real breakthrough for me in Chess Master is really this last edition. It's when they brought Josh Whiteskin, however you pronounce his name, um, in to do the t- I have no idea whether he wrote them, but he does the voiceovers for the tutorials at least. And I have a feeling he probably actually wrote or, or designed a lot of the scenarios behind it too. And he, his way of instructing or that that's tutorials way of instructing, I found so much more compelling than any of the, you know, 20 chess books that are sitting on my shelf or, you know, the, I mean, I actually have taken classes in chess before I took like a class in end game strategy once when I was in Boston, the Boston chess society did a thing. And, and really the thing about chess that's so unique is that it's a little bit like studying calculus, right? There are people who get calculus right off the bat and therefore get immediately bored after the first class. And there are people for whom, like me, for whom calculus is something that when I've studied it and it's fresh in my head, I get it. And then you step away for three or four days and you forget half of what you've learned. Right. And, and if that's the kind of gamer you are, if that's the kind of sort of analytical brain you have where something has to be fresh until finally it's sort of organic and really in your head, chess can be really frustrating because you learn print, you learn sort of core principles. You learn about controlling the center. You learn about, uh, you know, materiel and, and points values for the pieces, right? You learn right. the things that are beyond just the rules and you learn sort of really basic opening theory, you know, sort of the four or five key classic rules, right. the four or five key modern rules of opening theory, and and you get about that far and then you stop studying chess with air yeah. quotes around it for a while and it sort of slips out of your head and then you're sort of back to being a you know 1000 level player again and or you know in in my case and and that's what's really great about the white skin stuff is that he really takes you through the next steps right like what what is what does development really look like once you get past prefab openings how do you really play end game strategy and it's so approachable and it's so repeatable and the pacing is so good that i found it really drew me into chess in a way that no chess game ever has before well i think the other thing that it's really got going for it is that I mean, there's there's like no other game you can point to where you're going to have so much information and theory and so many records, um, you know, stored in one place. And Chessmaster does this. It's your chess library. It's your chess tutor all rolled into one. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the great thing about that is... You know, I mean, it's it's really bottomless. You can you can just keep you can keep like looking at old games. You can save your save your save your own games and you know run those through the analyzer. Right. Um. There's there's really no, there's really nothing else like it for basically being like a school. Right. That you can, for that you for can any kind of gaming. Event. For any kind of gaming. Right. Well, right. I mean, with other games, it's always like, well, go to this forum and oh, here's a really good thread on this tactic for this game. The the information's scattered all to hell. Well, the um, close, oddly, the closest you get is the StarCraft community, right? Because the, the the culture there of watching saved games has developed to the point where it's almost like that, right? Where there there are sort of defined openings, right? There's defined build orders. And people do spend time sort of watching game tape and really playing these things out. Um, but but I want to I wanna make sure that we don't just turn this into a, like our, our favorite games podcast. The th- I think the things that chess teaches and it's, it's interesting my my you know both my kids are in a Montessori school and they teach chess right off the bat 
It's one of it's yeah. a standard part of the curriculum. So my kids have both learned chess in school. Um, and, you know, I sort of asked them before this, like, what what you know, what did you learn about chess? Like, what principles did you get? Um, and really, oddly, I think what it's taught them is territory control. Like, it, mm-hmm. they really understand the difference between owning the middle and owning the edge yep. of the board. Um, they really understand unit differentiation, right? Which I think is a core strategic concept that not every piece is the same. Um, and they they really understand the sort of issue of sacrifice and and material value. Um, and those are those are real core strategic concepts that I think play out in every strategy game ever. Absolutely. Um, the other thing I would say is that the nice thing about having a resource like Chess Master is there's a place for humility with it. I, I don't know about you, but for me, when I, when I approach a new game, I tend to have this attitude that um, you know I should be able to figure it all out for myself, right? I should sit down right. at the computer and to consult too much to consult too many strategy guides is somehow cheating, right? Yeah, like I should exactly. be able to discover these strategies on my own. I'm a smart but, guy. I should win. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because it should be a level playing field, right? But with chess, there's none of that. I mean, it's been around forever, and so there's and, like and there's you no know you'll cheating. never be great, right? Because right. you know, I mean, we just have lives for no other reason. Even if we right. were the smartest people in the world. Uh, you know, there are very few people who rise to the top of that game. And it's a game that's so easily measured, right? I mean, it's got, it's the default measuring, you know, the ELO standard for measuring people's performance in chess is the the oldest, most rigorous system for saying whether or not you're better than somebody else. So it's a little bit like golf in the sense that you can play a little bit and you can work on getting better, but you know you're never going to be truly great. Um, so, I mean, so chess is the place I'd start, but a lot of people play chess and they aren't really strategy gamers. So I mean, how do how do you bring them how do you bring them closer to the fold? Well, I think you know I was going through my list and and I actually I, I it took me three maybe four games to get out of the sort of pen and paper board game world. Um, and and we I don't think we should dig too deep into all of them. But but the other ones that I wanted to put out there uh, in that sense were go. Because I think Go actually teaches much more sophisticated territory control than chess. It's also very easy to teach to kids, right? And the rule system is also very simple. Um, I don't don't actually enjoy it as much as chess because in some senses it is so simple. I know Go players all over the world are now going to send me hate mail. I know. But, I mean, yes, I get you can't teach computers how to play it well. Whatever. I find it a little simplistic and therefore I don't enjoy the replay value as much. But then I started thinking about games that teach you about dealing with other people, Mm -hmm. right? Which, which is something that if you just dive down the video game path, you can end up in a pretty lonely place. That's true. And and I think strategy really has to at some point involve negotiation and reading people if you really want to get into it. And so the games that I would come up with are hearts of all things, which is not a game that I voluntarily pick up a lot, but um, it, it introduces multiple win commission conditions. It introduces bluffing. Um, it introduces sort of resource hoarding and information management, uh, which I think in a multiplayer strategy game become very critical. Um, you know, right. and, and a lot of sort of introductory strategy board games that's that is very critical. Like in Stratego, bluffing and and making mm-hmm. your opponent think you're doing something you're not. Those kind of feints become very important. And Hearts starts to teach you that and again extremely easy to teach doesn't feel like you're teaching a strategy game and then the last one on the board game list i mean i could talk about board games all day but the last one on my list would probably have to be risk and i can't deny it 
And, uh, and uh, you know, Rob, Rob Davio is a friend of mine who's designed most of the risk variants over the last 10 years. He's fond of saying that risk is either the last kid's game you ever play or the first adult game you ever play, yep. depending on where you hit it in yep. your life. Um, because risk teaches you things like how to hurt somebody a little bit, but not so much that they then spend the rest of their lives trying to destroy you. Right? Right. They teach you the, the sort of fine art of zero sum game negotiation. Right. They, they yeah. really if you play more than a couple games of risk, you really get that sense of, oh, this game actually has nothing to do with territory control and random dice. It has everything to do with how well do you play possum and how well right. do you flee your case and how well can you milk an alliance and get just the right time to break the alliance and backstab your opponent. Right. And those, I think, are really key strategic concepts. Um, no, I mean, we were talking about this on the on the. Um... You know how we how you know where we came from uh, show and risk came up because I think it it can whet your appetite mm -hmm. um, and it won't it won't fill it but that's healthy uh, because you know you, you you like what you see in risk but you need something else you need something with a little more substance and you know it's after you play risk at least you know in my case it was after I played risk that I started looking for something a little more interesting a little more filling. What did you go to? <laughs> uh, squad leader yeah well i see now that that's where i sort of said well at what point do i jump the jump the line from the pen and paper world to the video game world in this discussion and squad leader was definitely you know that game for me um and and i went from squad leader to asl pretty quickly because i had a group that was playing it and i think that's the unfortunate truth about advanced squad leader is essentially nobody learns that game on their own if you don't have a buddy who plays it mm -hmm. you aren't really going to play it right you can read the rules you can run some scenarios on your own you can try to play it online but if anybody has ever truly taught themselves to play advanced squad leader and then shown up and been able to just play with the guy you know right. at the game store then they're they should just go become chess masters right that that's that's a skill that i don't possess um so i mean Getting out of the board gaming world, I mean, what what are the gateway computer games that you that you use? Yeah, well, see, now the problem here becomes one of versioning because so many of our strategy classics that that we would point to, you know, there's right. nine different versions, and so it's it's a little bit tough to say whether you're picking one game or whether you're picking a series. It's really hard not to just pull civiliz civilization out of the hat first. It's right for me. I mean, that's just. Because, you know, so much of what I've learned about strategy, I've learned sort of at the doorstep of Sid Meier one way or another. Mm -hmm. um, no, I mean, so I, I'd say Civilization. Uh, I, I don't know. Screw it. Civilization 4 is where I'd start. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it's not, I will it's start not where I best, started. Right? Right. Yeah, it's not where I started. I started really with um, I played Civilization a little, but really the one that really got me with Civ 2. Right. Um, but I don't think civilization is nice in that I think as new versions have been have have come out, um, they've each retained enough that was accessible and interesting about the very first Civ um, that you can still get that that first hit right. Yeah, you can that kind you of still... play Civ Four like Civ One, right? right? Right, and like you you learn the barest bones of that system and you learn enough not to have your empire just collapse on itself after like 20 turns and then you begin to learn how to really right. play the game and with Civ 4 I think you can play it really superficially on lower difficulty levels or you can just crank it up and micro the hell out of it when you're ready 
it may be actually that the best gateway version of that is actually uh, Civ Rev, right? Because it, it it does simplify so much of that down. I should really play. Oh, yeah. not on my computer. Um, <laughs> you haven't played Civilization Revolutions, have you? you no. Can, you can admit it right now. Yeah, I have not. It's played available it. on every platform but your PC. You realize that? Yeah, I'm I'm aware of that, but You're, I mean, we'll get you. We'll get you one of these days. But for me, it's like I've got I've got single malt on my desktop, so why would I go to Doers? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, because sometimes it's it's important to see how the other half lives. Yeah. But but I, I actually worry that some that Civ may be jumping ahead too many steps. I mean, what are your best examples of sort of taking the beginnings of that wargaming? Uh, you know, thing that you're going to start when you teach somebody uh, risk and maybe they see the squad leader box and you want to back them down from, because that's a, even just going to straight squad leader, you're dumping, you're jumping way ahead, right? I mean, my nine year old is not going to jump into squad leader right now. Not that you couldn't, but I don't yeah. think he's going to. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about earlier this week, um, earlier today, I mean, is that the problem I run into is that the games I learned from, um, you know, sort of arose at the start of their respective genres, right? Um, I played Warcraft 2. I played the original Command and Conquer, and I learned genre conventions from these games. Right. Um, and the problem, the problem I face now is that it's difficult to go back to these games because in a lot of ways they're not, you know, terribly... I mean, they're kind of ugly in a lot of cases, but also the interface is really clunky, and there's not this right. wow shiny factor to keep you going. Right, right? you aren't going to be wowed by. Well, and not- and modern versions of these games are frankly better, not just because they got more complicated, but because but they learn from their mistakes too. They're, they're better, but are they better for the newcomer? And I think that's a real problem: is that they all keep building on this foundation, and and it's a foundation that assumes knowledge, right, um, on the part of their player base. And so I think you know Warcraft two was, I think, really easy to get into for a newcomer in a way that I think StarCraft II or WarCraft III, um, in a way, I think those are going to be or were much more challenging. Hmm. I, can, I can see that. I mean, WarCraft II was definitely really straightforward. I, I, I sort of put on my list WarCraft III uh, mostly because it was, um, if you're, if, if you're going to introduce somebody to the RTS as a genre, so many of the tropes we still live with are are still in Warcraft 3 and Warcraft 2 misses a bunch of things most specifically you know Warcraft 3 introduced heroes you know and and sort of by reference sort of really important individual units versus really generic units for the first time um and if you look at sort of all the RTSs since then that's a really common concept right and i yeah. also think that by Warcraft 3 a lot of the interface clunkiness that was still around the edges of Warcraft 2 had kind of been polished out um right. so so from my perspective i would probably toss somebody into Warcraft 3 although again at this point my my, you know, my daughter's not jumping into Warcraft three probably right off the bat, although probably not far, right? I mean, it does, it, it doesn't require micromanagement the way a lot of later RTSs do. You certainly can get pretty micromanaging if you really want to, but but you can really kind of point and click your way through that game pretty successfully. Certainly, if you're just sort of grinding through the campaign on easy, right? Um, but I I don't know to to go from. You know, when I was playing basic squad leader to getting into war games, I think, you know, one thing that's really important is that 
for a newcomer coming into the hobby, I wanted my games to be really evocative, really exciting looking mm-hmm. and sounding. Um, Certainly once you got onto the PC, which was supposed to be virtual reality, right? As soon as you turn on your PC, it's supposed to be a holodeck. Right. Um, So, I mean, like, one game that I wish there was maybe a more modern and um, handsomer version of it than perhaps there is. Uh, But Steel Panthers, I think, is just a really good um, intro tactical war game. Sure. I mean, that's, I mean, my record, I mean, I'll be honest, I have probably haven't played steel Panthers since what the late nineties, whenever the last yeah. big versions were out. Um, so I don't have super detailed recollections of it, but you know, my recollection was that felt an awful lot like playing a chip based war game. I mean, it was hex based and you were moving units around and they had stats that were easily identifiable. Um, but it was, but it, but it had a little bit of flash too. Right. I, and I mean, one of the things that I really remember about Steel Panthers, um, I mean, maybe it's the thing I remember best, is the way that game sounded. There were so many sound effects and the battles. Oh, like, I remember the machine just, gun I mean, sound. There do was you remember like, the ricochet sound? Like, yeah, I remember it very vividly. Right. And so I'd be sitting there and like, yeah, it's it's turn based and it's just these little like sprites being shoveled around a board. But once these things start shooting at each other, I mean, you know, I remember just the almost like sexual rush I'd get when like, you know, the frontal, the front armor. Do you need a moment? Do you want to breathe for a minute? You need to. I'm just saying, I'm just saying it was it was all kinds of satisfying when like that damn T-34 finally blew the hell up. Right. Um, so, and I mean, there's, so I think there's a lot to be said I th- for I think that genre. I think there are a bunch of games that, that are around that era and that probably, and probably most of them approach world war two that you can, you can probably point to that have similar, a, a similar effect, right. For a gamer. I mean, for me, Panzer general two was probably more my gateway mm-hmm. into that. I'm sure we'd get a bunch of emails from people saying close combat, close combat, I thought about that one. I really did. Um, but but again, for a similar reason that it does suck you into the the scenario and a little bit, of, you know, a little bit of that you are here thing. I mean, not in the you know company of heroes way of you are here, but uh, but for the for the time, definitely right. You know, but what I find really appealing about a game like uh, Steel Panthers, maybe the same applies to uh, Panzer General, is just. You know, the bottom line is you're dealing with this really traditional turn-based design. It's not its not even trying anything fancy like a Wiga system. Just your units go de- sequentially. There's, you know, uh, prep fire. There's defensive fire. There's, you know, all the, all the tropes we're introduced to in, say, Squad Leader um, sort of transition to these really excited, these evocative board games on the PC. And I think there's a lot to be said for just, how manageable ga- those games could be. You know, now that you're saying that, I'm 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 going to rescind my sort of generic Panzer General 2 comment because I that to me that was the best one in the Panzer General series. I'm going to say Panzer General Allied Assault on the Xbox because that one takes the that that sense of like being in the thick of it a little bit and puts yeah. it in this sort of really simplistic board slash card game environment that i mean it's i mean it's super simplistic super simplistic you think it works as a good gateway drug but i do think i actually I mean, the more i think about it the more i think it does work as a gateway drug i played that game multiplayer against a bunch of people who i would not consider core strategy gamers obviously they had xboxes so they were right. gamers um 
and and got into some pretty heated battles and made a lot of interesting strategic decisions. And it introduces things like terrain value for the first time. It right. introduces, uh, you know, to some extent, things like prep fire for the first time. Yeah. Uh, you know, the idea that you can choose like when your units are going to act as a as a value. Um, so, I mean, I actually think that's a, probably a pretty I ha- I'll have to think about that. But I think that may be a better gateway drug than I might have otherwise thought. What else? What's on your list? Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the danger... I look at my list, and, I, and I'm worried that I'm just sort of describing my own gaming autobiography. How can you not do that? Is well, it... I mean, I try to take pains not to just, you know, these are the games I really liked growing up. Right. Um, that's that's not all they are. But, I, but the well, thing I kept returning to is you need... The bottom line is, when you're first getting into it, you're not going to appreciate the elegance of the system. You're not going, you know, you're not going to appreciate um, all the interesting choices you can make over the course of this one, this one game. You, you don't, you aren't thinking that way. You aren't, you aren't trained to to approach these games this way. So what, what I kept looking at is, what's what's evocative? What creates a game world that you want to spend time in and do these tactical or strategic? Uh, See, I I hadn't thought about it that way at all. I was really thinking about it as like game X teaches Y theory, but you're, but you're right. If you don't actually want to play it, you'll never get there. Um, Right. Yeah, I, I can see that. And actually, if I point to it, going back to, you know, the, the little conversation we just had about things like, like Panzer general or, or steel Panthers or, or close combat, um, I can't point to one thing that those do. They certainly introduce genre conventions very nicely, right? They they introduce yeah. you know they introduce some aspects of terrain, although I would argue pretty much mathematically, not in a particularly interesting way. Um, but they do sort of suck you into a campaign and get you focused. Um, but I'm not sure I can point to them and say you're learning a particular core strategy concept from them. You're just playing a good game that happens to include most of those core concepts in them, right? So what games what games do you point to and say these are games that really nail a concept? Um you know What was that? <laughs> um I I'm thinking of Agricola is the first thing that comes to mind. Agricola. Yeah, really? Wow, you look like back to the board game world. Well, Agricola, which for those of our listeners that that aren't as quite as masochistic as Rob and I, I know we are, um, is a very complex, long, deep strategy. Okay, no, hang on, right there, right there. I think it is the wrong foot with that game. No, it is. You are you are you are are making that sound so much more forbidding than it actually. It is is very forbidding. It. I love it. It is the game that I try to get everybody to play. But it is like I mean, I mean, the, the, it's about becoming the world's most average. It's your quintessential. Form. It's your quintessential. The first turn takes an hour. The yes. next one takes ten minutes. Yes. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think it's that, that overwhelming. Especially because there's that simplified version you can play, right? The one that's you know Nobody stripped down plays the my... family version. Come on. Oh, uh, I. You know what? That's that's where I started. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and the 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 great thing about that. Is for me when I was when I was playing that. Um, to me, it was it just sort of enunciated so many of the concepts that I sort of taken for granted in like RTSs. Like what? Um, the importance of like the role of gated progress 
and the importance of having a strategy in place to take advantage of each new opportunity as it opens. See, but to me, that's that's a skill. That's a genre convention skill, right? Because the thing about Agricola is to me, it's a classic big with big air quotes around it strategy game in mm-hmm. that the first time you go through it, you just get hit in the head with a bat, right? Because there are no logical expectations right? right there's no logical reason really why in agricola you don't get uh the you know the ability to put people into your house without making your house bigger until the end of the game i mean there's right. so many like little fiddly rules in that that once you played through them once and you understand what's coming now you're playing the system and yeah. i would and i would say that's a valuable skill as a game player but as a strategy concept i would say I mean, to me, that's a little bit like in We the People, understanding the overwintering rule is the key to win- key to that game. Because if you screw it up, you lose half your guys. That's but, not actually obvious, nor is it a particularly strategic concept to learn. It's just a rule that's implemented brutally in that particular game. So I, I and I'm saying this is like Agricola is my favorite game of the last two years, my favorite board game. Right. So I love this game, but I think it's a game about system optimization not particularly demonstrating what i mean maybe that is a core strategic concept well i optimization for me i think because it's it's so stripped down that you're you're really just staring at that system and figuring out how oh come on i just i'm just not with you i don't i do not consider agricola stripped down i mean i consider it I, I consider it a beautiful, okay. balanced, and interesting game with, like, I mean, there's, like, nine ways to win. And, I mean, it's it, I, I love the game. But to me, that's so far down the deep end of the pool that is, as any kind of, like, learn this core strategic concept by playing this game, I would be, like, at the bottom of my list. So I'm, I'm going to yank something off your list that All I right. think is a much better example. Myth 1. Right? Okay. Myth 1 as is sort of like an early game to hand. I mean, not that I don't even know whether you can get it, but I wish you could, but myth one to hand to somebody who is not like a heavy duty strategy video gamer teaches you about the value of your environment in a way that so yeah. few strategy games do, because that was one Forever of the few. Have. Yeah. And one of the few, and if only series of games and, and really just that early bungee years, you know, deck with the mod community that came after, you know, where, like you know, you could you could pick up a guy off the ground and throw him, and that was a valuable piece of strategery, right? I mean, the, the right. environment mattered, and in, in I mean, obviously, therefore, terrain mattered in a way that's so much more important and evocative than uh, I'm on the hill, I get plus one. I'm in the oh, water, absolutely. I stop, right? I mean, the sort of standard strategy tropes of terrain. Well, and, and the thing is. You know, I mean, not only was that game for its time, and I would say even today, it's still a really attractive game. I mean, that's just a pretty world, and it's, you know, it's a nice well, place to go. Yeah, and like, and and its art style was slightly stylized to the point where, in retrospect, you could play it and now. Almost imagine it is kind of World of Warcrafty, right? Yeah. Because... <laughs> well, I went back and played Myth Two like just a year or so ago, and I mean, I was surprised how well it held up. But the 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 other thing is that you remember how. For its time, and I, I would suspect even by today's standards, it had this really nifty sort of physics engine, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like that, trees, trees fell down, and that hindered your and, opponents. And like yeah. dwarven grenades would just like go bouncing everywhere, and sometimes they wouldn't explode. You'd have to be right. like, you know, it'd be the fireworks dilemma, right? Like, did, it, did the wick burn out, or I mean, you'd be exactly. wondering whether exactly. it approached it. And 
what that created were all these little it, it really became a game entirely about reading the smallest different the smallest um you know alterations in like terrain you know elevation like you know if you could find some like you know lump of turf to stand an archer on top of it it was totally worth it to fight for like you know yeah. Six inch elevation because you get you'd be able to shoot just a little farther. Yeah. Um, your dwarf could hurl just a little farther, and it was. I mean, it, there were no there were no stats to keep track of. It was all in front of your eyes. You could see. It, well, all. and it was it was one of those those very first games that really introduced that idea of real time tactics instead of real time yeah. strategy. Right. There's no resource harvesting. There's no. I mean, none of the stuff that is the standard build of an RTS is in this. It is purely tactical. It's my guys on this on on you know on the ground moving around and 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 frankly the the only game i can think of that makes me feel that on the ground i mean i i know it gets compared a lot to things like total war series right because mm-hmm. that's the that's the one that may, has that same or at least similar quality of really being on the ground with your dudes and being able to say no 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 flank over here and it will really matter um the only games i can think of that really adopted this in quite the same way oddly right. enough it's company of heroes where I really felt that sense of like I zoom in, I'm looking at three guys like or four guys on the battlefield at the moment and really understanding where those four guys for that moment in time really matters. Maybe Dawn of War 2 in the single player campaign, not the multiplayer version. But Dawn of War 2 has that similar quality of like really micro positioning your guys and getting super tactical can make a big difference. But Company of Heroes has that feel. Now, Company of Heroes obviously also has all the RTS stuff going on, too. Right. To the point where I think it's really overwhelming in a way that Myth mercifully wasn't. Absolutely. because And, and so I think actually Myth is a superior design for that well, reason. Certainly if you're trying to teach somebody about small unit tactics, Myth, that, that series to me, and, and it would be t- I, I wasn't a big fan of Myth 3. It would be a tough call for me about Myth versus Myth 2, which one I thought did this better. To me, it's the closest implementation of how you understand squad-based tactics if you played right. against Squad Leader. Oddly really? enough. Oddly enough. Okay, that's no, no, that's that seems like an odd comparison to me. No, uh, because connection. Well, I mean, okay, it, it, I, I admit it is, it's a stretch, but when I first started playing Squad Leader and then ASL was the first time I really started thinking about, oh, take these guys, put them in the woods, which is one square away from where I am, and take this guy because he's got you know, uh, you know, yeah. a weapon that can go six hexes instead of four. Um, put him in the building because he'll be able to have a range of fire that's really useful for the next five turns, right? That was the first time I really started thinking about those micro decisions yeah. about placement and terrain. And Myth and Myth 2, to me, really reinforced that same thing. The thing you're talking about, like fighting for that six inches of elevation because you can get just that much farther with those three guys in that one unit, right? That, to me, those are really core strategic concepts that that sadly, I can't think of very many games that live up to that anymore curse you Bungie. go back to making strategy games oh i know that's why i look at, <laughs> I look at halo just with absolute hatred i'm like but they made such great games before um but i think you know one other thing that i think you know myth does really well is that i think i mean it tells an exciting story mm-hmm. um and this is a problem i mean if you want to talk about like one reason i think it's hard to get people into the genre is that we're we're too used to we're too used to looking for like simulations of a battle 
or a campaign, or just an entire system of war. And Myth isn't interested really in any of that. It's interested in telling this really cool story, right? It's this medieval fantasy kingdom that's facing the zombie apocalypse. I mean, right. that's what's happening. The dead are rising, and you know, the forces of hell are unleashed. Um, and how do you deal with that? And so, I mean, just from just from the way the story is told and what you see of the enemy. Um, you really, you really get in. You really invest in this world, in what you're doing, um, to the point where I think it. You know, if you know, I guess you'd say it, it helps the medicine go down really easily. That right. you're just you're just having a great time fighting off the hordes of ravening undead, um, and along the way, you're micromanaging formations and learning to employ the pseudo medieval you know armies correctly, but you aren't. You aren't thinking of it in those terms. You aren't right. thinking it's like I'm leading a little, you know, company of I, you know, yeah. mercenaries. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Myth is actually sort of unique in how well. Again, certainly the first two games were unique in how well they told the story. I, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to. I mean, I didn't talk a lot about this when it was out. I actually think Dawn of War Two did a pretty damn good job with that. And, I'm, and I think I know I'm an outlier on that, and it's not like I have some major boner for this game, but but I was impressed with the cleanness and the and the cohesiveness with which they tried to tell a single player story in a strategy game, because most RTSs that I play, it just seems like a total train wreck. Right. Um, I will, I will, I will cop to not having played um, Dawn of War two. I mean, for some reason I played the multiplayer beta. It's even on the PC. You don't even have an excuse. You know, there are so many games. There are so many games. There are too many. All right, so I mean, you know, this is obviously an incomplete list of um, games that could help bring people into the hobby, and obviously listeners will probably have their own thoughts on the best way to do that. Uh, But the other thing I want to get into is, what do you think are the games that are the best teachers? Um, What I I touched on earlier with Agricola, and you vehemently disagreed with, but what are the games that um, what are the games that illustrate concepts really well and deepen your appreciation? They like they like make you a better gamer. Yeah, better in how you game, better in how you think about them. Well, I mean, I, I, I'll now. Now I'm going to sound like again, like I'm. I can't get out of my board game roots, but I would say Settlers of Catan, which is a game that I will admit that I have probably not played a full game of in like on you know in cardboard and wood in three years. It's not like a game that I bring out all the time. I played I played the various iterations that roll out onto the Xbox or whatever because I just want to right. see how they do it. But that's a game that really introduces and, and blends these ideas of territory control, resource management, negotiation and trading in particular um, yeah. in, in a really cohesive way. And you can't just go down one path. You have to have a balanced strategy. And that's something right. I think that's very difficult to teach, that idea of balanced progression. Well, and I mean – just to kick it back to Agricola here, just for one second, I think one of the things that I always laugh at is, um, you know, my partner MK. She has this very um, orderly mind, and she's she's a natural born min maxer. And the way she attacks that game is she she tries to go industrial um, with the you know she tries to basically turn into an industrial farm and chooses one attack route towards victory. Right. But it always burns her in the end because she forgets that wait a second, this is about this is about diversification. And it's about being the world's most average person, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and that that is very difficult to teach because I think one of the things that uh, I've actually seen this with my kids and how they've learned chess is that when you put two like 
seven-year-old kids playing chess against each other. Yeah. Neither one of them is some sort of crazy, stupid prodigy, but they're just like playing age-appropriate chess for the age of right. seven. So they're making lots of mistakes. They're they're doing all the things you shouldn't do. They're bringing their kings out early. They often will rut. They'll figure out like, oh, I figured out that if I bring my queen out on turn four, then I can just like completely control the center of the board and they can never catch up, right? So they get this lesson in tempo. And so they push that tempo lesson all the way through the game until eventually they figure out it won't happen. And that's right. very hard to teach somebody that that doesn't work, right? Because when when you play against another person who you're expecting to be way better than you, you don't actually learn the lesson, right? You just realize they're way better than you. Um, it, it really only comes down to when you have these sort of balance battles that I think you learn those lessons. So I think I think that's a really really good point that games that teach that balance are they're actually kind of few and far between. I can't think of very many games that reward, uh, you know, I mean I hate to say it this way, but that reward mediocrity. Right. Right. I I mean actually now that I say that I'll think of one. Reiner Knizia is ingenious, which is a abstract board game there's a version for the pc there's a version for all the iphone platforms um very simple tile placement game but it has this sort of quasi golf scoring system where uh, you know you're you're only as good as your lowest score so right. you can if you maximize your yellows mm -hmm. forget your purples your purple is the score that's going to dominate the game those kinds of games, I think, are very important for gamers to learn, particularly if they're going to advance into more complex real-time strategy games where you really need to think about this balance of rock, paper, scissors. You really need to think about, well, I don't know, like in Supreme Commander, it's like you can't you can't just focus entirely on infantry units. You actually do need some aerial support or you're just going to get killed. Right. Hmm. Um. I think, you know, one of the games that I'd, I'd go to as just something that really, you know, I mean, this is this is how to do it right, um, would probably be would be probably be Sid Meier's Gettysburg. I mean, obviously, the way my, my list is balanced towards um, is biased towards war games. OK, of like course. I think you know, we, we strategy... got, we'll give that up. We'll give that up. Huh? Yeah. Um, but I just I look at I look at. Sid's Gettysburg. I was, you know, playing that a few months ago before getting into Scourge of War, just you know, to compare how the two of them treat the same battle. Um, and Scourge of War is great. Um, it's using sort of that, you know, that take command model. Uh, but, but Sid's Gettysburg. What I love is just, I mean, it's so perfectly paced. It moves along. It's such a good clip. Um, and the interface is so informative, and so it's it's teaching these concepts about how to use terrain, and really using terrain to manage your men's morale, and using formations to manage morale. See, I mean, that's see, that's that that's what I was hoping you were going to get to, because to me, I think of Gettysburg as the first game, the first video game that ever really brought that concept of morale to light for me, mm -hmm. right? which is something as a chit-based war gamer, I was very used to, right? Because countless chit-based board games. You know, your units, you, you know, your units routing, they're flipped over and they're useless, right? You really right. get used to that idea of you have useful units and you have shaken units. Yeah. And the shaken units are worse than nothing, right? You'd rather have reinforcements yeah. coming in on the edge of the board than some guy who's going to move two hexes in the wrong direction. Every yep. And Gettysburg really did bring that to light. I mean, not maybe in quite as specific a way as having three units that were just running away. 
Um, but yeah. that that concept of morale, I think, is an important one to get across. Well, and I'd love just how clearly it it showed morale effects. And this mm-hmm. is something that I think games still struggle with, is that you'll be playing a game and somewhere in in somewhere in the box, um, a check was just failed, and the troops are you know booking it like hell away from the battlefield. But you can't really you can't really put your finger on what was the what was the struggle. Well, and, and oddly, that was that was an issue I had with Scourge of War as I played. I mean, when we when we had I can't remember his name, and I apologize. Um, the designer and his history. Uh, Norb. Uh, Norb, right. Norb when we had Norb on to talk about it, I hadn't played it as much as I have now. And actually, yeah. that's one of my big problems with that game is I still don't quite understand what I'm doing wrong when a unit routes, right? I mean, I right. understand in general, it's like, oh, he was overpowered or, oh, he got flanked or, I mean, all those sorts of things. I understand right. the core concept of why he got routed, but I don't understand in any level of detail where I feel like I could change the situation dramatically by repositioning the unit or making sure they had artillery behind them or something like that. Right. Um, and, and that is a difficult thing to really illustrate right. in a video game. Right, where Sid's Gettysburg, every single modifier appears there as a square on the morale bar yep, that is slowly exactly. filling with red. And when that bar fills, it's right. game over for these right. troops. And that's really what that game is about in right. some ways. That really is what the game ends up being about. Right. It's all about managing you know, the morale of your men and using the train to do that. And so, I mean, I just think it's one of the absolute best games for doing that. And the other thing I will say for it is... I think a problem, another problem you run into with a lot of war games is sort of a murkiness in victory conditions. Sure. Uh, where there'll sure. be objectives, there'll be objective points, and maybe you'll take them, maybe you won't. But for some reason, it, it sometimes seems murky. And again, I point to Scourge of War. That's hardly the only game that does this, um, where you might take an objective, and then the game will tell you that somehow you lost this battle. Or your victory was the crappiest kind yeah, of Yeah, well, I mean, even in Scourge of War, if like, you really paid attention before you started, you could probably know at that point like what you'd done wrong. But I agree. Right. There are games that try to introduce this concept of multiple ways to win, multiple ways to lose, which is strategically interesting, but poorly implemented. That's a classic right. problem. But, right. but, but if we're going to get to that, that issue of like multiple ways to win... Right. Um, I mean, again, I we we keep going back to this stupid board game, which I keep telling people they should hate, and I keep loving Agricola. Right. I mean, that's okay. a classic case of multiple strategies to win. Board games have gotten very good at this, this sort of multiple strategies to win idea. And if I had to go back to video games, Civilization Four, I think, is a classic case where you're playing multiple ways to win against each other. Now, in Civ Four's right. case, those ways are pretty binary. It's like you're either going to pick, like, "Oh, I'm going for a wonder victory," or "I'm not," and you're either yeah, going to win mean, or you're going to succeed. There's no, you're never going to be working two angles against each other and be like, "Oh, okay, I guess I get the victory." With, you know. Yeah, you can maybe jump ship on a strategy at the start of the medieval era. I mean, that's maybe your that's maybe your fail safe point. Right. At which point, the bombers can't be turned back. You know, it's culture or bust. Um, right. And, and, and for that reason, I will honestly say I have quit way more games of Civ four than I've ever finished that. I mean, and that's, that's a problem. Um, it is a problem. I, I mean, curse you Soren Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think, I think it's a problem that there are so few strategy games. Um, I think Troy posted on his blog, um, you know, last week or so where gamers, um, have, completely bought into the narrative of constant progression, right? They're constantly, they're always winning, you know? And the moment things start to look bad, um, 
you know, it's like, well, screw this, reload from an earlier save. And exactly. especially, I mean, I think I will admit, like, the moment if it's an empire building game, okay, we, we never, we right. do not lose. We like, I don't exactly. care what when the shit's of... gone wrong, you just restart. Yeah, exactly. And right. the problem is, of course, we're, we're we're killing, we're strangling in the cradle. Probably the best wargaming or strategy stories you can ever tell, right? Like, I mean, the best story is the one where I was so screwed, and then I won. And then I pulled it out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. And 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 this is something that that oddly I think board game designers wrestle with much more, right? Because I don't think that very many video game designers worry about catch-up features, but board game designers worry about this constantly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like number one on the list of of things to fix, right? If you have a game that can be lost in turn one because you did some one player did something stupid, you have a broken game, right? Yeah. And and Settlers of Catan, I think, is is completely justifiably criticized for being a game that you can lose on turn one. If you don't understand the rules really well enough, you can lose that game on setup and everybody else. And, and and you could just basically just stand up and walk away from the game, you know, risk in some ways with the old version of risk, Mm -hmm. right? Set up where you had to like pick where you were going. Um, that was a game you could lose pretty much on setup. If you really screwed it up and you just never concentrated anywhere and just sort of did something haphazard, you could lose on setup. Video games kind of never worry about it. They just sort of assume that somebody's played right. through the tutorial and that they've, they've played all the baby scenarios up to where they got to play the real game. And therefore, there's no such thing as a real catch-up feature, which, which I find interesting, right? I mean, because... Yeah. Uh, because catch-up features make for those comeback scenarios, which really make for those stories that you tell over and over again about the time that you came back against adversity. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's easier, though. I mean, we're touching on a fair amount of um, Euro games here, and I, I think you know maybe it's maybe it's it's worth considering that it's it's helpful to have games that aren't always the losing player is annihilated and his body is thrown from the highest tower and, right. you know, down to the well, but, you know, crowd's block. Yeah, well, and, and, and the flip side is that I think there's a trend in Euro gaming uh, because because Troy's not here, we can turn this into a board game podcast. There is a trend in Euro gaming towards games that are so close that you never know who's winning. I mean, Endeavor right. Endeavor would be a very popular current board game. Didn't win Spiel, should have. Right. Um that that uh, is one of those games where it's it's actually kind of hard to figure out who's winning for most of the game. And, and that it, moment of truth at the end. Right. And Agricola, I think, is very similar in that sense. If Agricola yeah. is a game that's often won by one point, and, mm-hmm. and you pretty much know if you're not winning, but but there is a chance to sort of pull it out. I mean, yeah. there, well, there's, there's, always, sort of, there's a lot of people who might think they're winning. Right. Um, that's I mean, that's the trap. Right. Um, but but that idea of 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 sort of the last minute catch up is very missing in most strategy games. I will actually say the biggest example where I find this to be problematic is um, in things like Demigod, where if you really if you get off to a bad start in Demigod, there's actually no reason there's no incentive to keep playing. Yeah. Right? I mean because the 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 gap between folks who get ahead in that. And the people who maybe get slaughtered the first couple times out because they run into, you know, they 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 run into the wrong set of units four or five times a row in the first five minutes of the game, you'll mm-hmm. never catch up. There's just right. abs- there's no catch up feature. You are basically relegated to sitting in the back and being the construction bitch for the rest of the game. Yeah. Right, and that's yeah. 
that's that's i mean i understand why sir i mean if you want to if it's a real test of wills and it's like guild versus guild and you're really trying to decide who's the best then yeah okay whatever it's like counter-strike fine yes it's totally skill-based but but but, i mean and and that's the thing though i think one one thing i wrestled with is i was trying to think of you know what are the games to pick for this for this topic is that I mean, so many of them are about killing the other guy, defeating the other team. And, I mean, for one thing, I think you run right into it. You run into a problem right away with not everyone wants to play a game that's about, um, you know, armies battling and, you know, one overpowering the other. Not everyone, not everyone wants to play that game. Right. Um, and I think it becomes particularly problematic when you're, when you're talking, like, multiplayer games. Absolutely. Um, and 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 strategy games are notoriously bad co-op, right? We have seen that we have a renaissance going on in both action shooters t- style games on video games and in board games on co-op, right? I mean, yeah. some of the best games of the last couple of years in both camps have been co-op, like Left 4 Dead, right? I mean, amazing yeah. game that's fundamentally a co-op game. Uh, you know, things like Shadows Over Camelot and uh, Pandemic and the board gaming world you know, completely co-op games. There's no way to play those. Uh, well, in pandemic, you can't. But but for the most part, they're they're co-op games. And in strategy games, it's real hard to find a way to say that. I mean, there's they're comp stomps is what it is. You're computer stomp games, right? And Sins of a Solar Empire, I think, did that very well, right? Like a three-on-three comp stomp. Yeah is a great way to play that game because it allows specialization, right? You can actually have a team that like one guy gets economic and one guy gets yep. very strike force and one guy gets, you know, goes and builds the equivalent of the wonder that wins the game, right? You can really get some interesting strategies there um, sort of an, in a three on three or four on four world. But that's really the exception. I mean, co-op yep. strategy is very hard to find. Um, you know, one thing, yeah, you you're talking a bit about this earlier. The the problem of um you know, being able to tell being able to tell exactly what the other person did to beat you, right? Right. Um like recognizing like you know you got beat. The kill cam. Exactly the sure kill how. cam. You always want the kill cam. Right. And in strategy that's gonna be a very different thing, right? Like right. I mean, one problem that I run into time and again is that I'll, I'll use my StarCraft II experience, uh, my limited StarCraft II experience as an example here. Uh, but I think it applies to StarCraft One as well, is that advanced players can conceive of the game in terms of having of running a particular, particular strategy based around right. one unit, and there's right. going to be one path of advancement. And to a layperson like myself, you know, I, I somehow think, well, this should be a well-balanced army. This, you know, like, I want a Swiss army knife, and right. I've got other guys coming at me with a rapier. Um, and the problem, the problem I run into is that with a lot of these games, if someone is running a coherent strategy, you have to be able to recognize it and immediately grab rock to beat their scissors. Well, let's get back to the very beginning of this podcast, how appropriate, since we're almost at the end of it. Chess, I would argue, is exactly that example, right? Where... And, and and it's interesting that you put StarCraft two at the end because it's you know the most current strategy came out. I mean, when does it launch? On Wednesday, Tuesday, yeah. right? So I mean, I mean, we've all downloaded all seven thousand gigs of it to our hard drive and are waiting for our codes to unrelease. At least I'm not reviewing it, so I have to wait like everybody else, right? So we have chess on one end, which is probably the oldest strategy game known to man, and StarCraft two, which is probably the newest game known to man. Mm-hmm. 
And in both cases, I would argue you face the same problem, which is at a high level of play. If you're playing black, the, the weaker position in chess, four moves into the game, you should know exactly what your strategy is. And if you yeah. fail to recognize the strategy that your white opponent is playing, you have lost the game unless you have amazing tactical capabilities yeah. right, at, the, at the highest level of the game. In StarCraft and StarCraft II, which follows this pattern very deliberately, right, that same thing happens, which is that the, at the highest level of play, the game is won or lost in the first two minutes of the game. Right. And that's, I mean, I, I admire Blizzard for creating that game. I admire Blizzard for recognizing what they created in StarCraft and, yeah. and how it was grasped by a certain caliber of player, which I am nowhere near, let me be clear, right? Yeah. I mean, I am, I am the, I mean, if I, I will never get out of the bronze tier, right? It's just, it's just where I am, right? I'll, I'll be, I'll be in the brick tier for the rest of my life in StarCraft 2. But I don't care because I'm going to play a single player campaign and I'm going to love it. But, but for the multiplayer version of that, I think the same thing happens is when you create pure strategy games they get boiled down to those core decisions and being truly great multiplayer, you know, mano a mano has to do with how fast you recognize what the situation is. And, and I'll be honest, I'm not that guy. That's true. And I mean, <laughs> I, well, no, I mean, you know, who's really not that guy is Troy. I think he, I think he's about to build his first zealot any minute now. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that's a problem we run into. You know, I mean, it's a problem with the entire real-time genre. Is that there's you're all I, I feel like it's always being driven by this really serious competitive community. I mean, the games are. I mean, they're the most vocal uh, proponents of the game. They're also the most vocal people on the forums, and increasingly they're the ones sort of who drive development of the game. And I think StarCraft 2 is an example of this, where StarCraft is, Blizzard goes into StarCraft almost naively, right? They have no idea that it's going to become StarCraft, you know, the, right. the premier um, competitive multiplayer game, you know, in the history of the next of decade. Yeah. Right. right. They have no idea that's going to happen. With StarCraft 2, I feel like that informs everything they did. Well, but, you know, you say that in my experience in, I mean, again, none of us at this point, I assume neither one of us has played the single player version of this game. Right. And so from a multiplayer perspective, I played against people who I would consider of generally like skill. And I've had a really good time with it. Right? I've really yeah. enjoyed it. But but I had, but it certainly if I was entering into the competitive world and was trying to move up the brackets, I'm sure I would get more frustrated than I have playing against friends. But you know what? That's my experience in games in general, right? That's very and true. that would be, that would be my experience if I sat down to play chess against Josh Weiskin, right? I mean, I I would I would never have any expectation that I would get past the twelfth turn, right? I would well, just... maybe this is maybe this is one of the things that board games really have going for them is you don't have the self selection problem where you sit down with whoever's at your house. And you play a board game with them, and they just like you know they they rip your heart out of the chest and like show it to you. Um, that's unlikely to happen. Well, well because you don't invite those people back. That's the well, key that's, thing, right? That's very true. But I, I think there is this problem where, you know, if you enter the online space to compete with someone in one of these games, they're there for a reason. Right. You know what I mean? Like they they're, they're, look, they're looking Especially for pubbers, right? If you don't yeah, know who yeah. they are. They're just exactly. purely looking for their dick to be bigger than yours. 
Right. And so, I mean, I think it's a problem. I don't think anyone's ever really solved it. And I'm not even sure that, I mean, I fingers crossed the matchmaking is really good in StarCraft 2. But sadly, I think it might be bad enough I broke it. Uh, <laughs> Wait, my experience, like going through the ladders for a little bit, was that it was pretty okay. Yeah. But wait, what do you mean you broke it? Tell me what you mean. Oh, no, I was just, um, oh, it was just like humiliation to, I mean, I was just getting spanked all around battle. Oh, okay. So you suck. Um, that's, that's yeah. different. I don't mind if you suck. That's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I can, I can still reclaim some dignity at launch. Um, <laughs> But, but but I'm really I, I will I will say this I mean I mean I guess we're sort of coming up towards the end of the classic Trey Goodfellow hour here but I, it's probably appropriate that we say I'm really looking forward to the single player game of this because I think that Blizzard ultimately has a history of delivering interesting and fun single player strategy games and and I think that's becoming a bit of an uh, you know a rare bird right now I mean Dawn of War two I still liked it. That's true. I mean, I, I will say this. The, the first Dawn of War got me back in RTSs. I'd kind of gotten away from them. But, I mean, again, what, what we talked about at the beginning, some spectacle, you know, some simple tactics to master. I think, you know, you can you can capture the imagination with those with just a couple things like that. Yep. And yep. that's, I mean, that's how you bring new people in. All right, so that does it for our discussion, um, our rambling discussion of the ideal strategy syllabus um and as always please uh, rate us on itunes um and next week we've got some special guests and we'll be covering a well-known mod for a revered strategy game uh so give us a listen next week um but for troy goodfellow i'm rob zachney saying good night good night good night everybody